hard to be unleashed to do anything if we don't have confidence to do that thing. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning uh, in this, as we continue this Unleashed series. We're walking through the book of Acts. If you've not been able to be with us or if you're new with us, you can actually catch yourself up on all of these Unleashed series by looking uh, online uh, at wendoverhills.org and you can, you can follow along. But we're going to be picking up in chapter 18 of Acts. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, there's some available still on the tables. You can slip out and pick one up. Uh, hopefully you picked up your sermon notes this morning. If you didn't, feel free to slip up your hand and uh, Richard's standing there. He'll bring you a copy of those uh, if you stick up your hand and, and you'll be ready to go uh, with that. So let me, uh, let me pray for you and we'll jump into this. Father, thank you for this morning. And Father, I would guess this morning that there was some people sitting here and they lack confidence in life. And Lord, there's just so much, Lord, can I just call it self-help junk out there? that supersedes anything about you. And so, Lord, today, we're going to put it back in your hands. And so, Lord, would you speak to us uh, the way we need to hear? We pray in your son's name. Amen. So, uh, the question is, how do you live with confidence when you don't know what the future holds? I mean, if you look at our our economy and you ask yourself, uh, uh, is it good? Is it bad? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Stock market, is it, is it going up? Is it going down? That can happen from day to day. Gas prices this summer alone, you may be traveling. Are, are they going to kind of stay here? Are they going to $4 a gallon? Will they trickle down to $3? I mean, you can just read any internet article you want, and they're all over the map. How do you live with confidence when you don't know what the future holds about your health? Maybe you went into a doctor, and they told you you had something. You battled it, you recovered from it, and you wonder, will it ever show up again? Am I going to have to deal with it? How do you live with confidence when you don't know for sure if you're going to have a job tomorrow? This was interesting. Do you realize that the top 10 jobs in demand, according to U.S. News and World Report in 2011, the top 10 jobs in in demand didn't even exist in 2004? 10 years ago, the top 10 jobs in, in demand didn't even exist. How do you stay ahead? How do you stay educated? in that world. In fact, the U.S. Department of Labor estimates that today's young people, they'll have 10 to 18 different jobs by the time they're 38 years old, just trying to bounce around in the know. How do you live with confidence when you don't know what's going to happen in our world? Been following the news lately? There's some serious conflicts going on around our world, and some of them involve some major world powers. How do you live in confidence? You see, it's difficult to live in confidence when we don't know what the future holds, right? And that's what we're talking about. So we're in the book of Acts, and we're reading about the life of Paul. Now, if you remember Paul, who was once a murderer of Christians and then became a Christian, that's the character we're talking about here. And we're going we're gonna to hear about this from Acts chapter 18. But he's going throughout the Roman Empire, and he's sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. That's really what he does. And if anyone had to live with confidence in the midst of controversy or tough times, it was Paul, as we've learned. So if you have your Bible, turn to ch- Acts chapter 18. And in this chapter, 18... Paul is leaving the town of Athens. We talked about Athens last week. Athens was the educated capital of the Roman Empire, and he heads to a city called Corinth. And Corinth probably could be called the, uh, the capital, uh, uh, excuse me, the commercial capital of the Roman Empire. It's loaded, located right off the uh, Gulf of Corinth Sea. And 
where it is at here in its location, it had this constant flow of people and money and goods. So can you kind of picture that kind of town? A lot of hustle and bustle, a port, ships coming in and out, lots of sailors, lots of men hanging around. And so you've got some, uh, some pretty good nightlife happening here as well. Parting, roughhousing, a lot of prostitution was in Corinth as well. This is kind of what the city was about. Now, some have made a bigger deal about Corinth, like it was the, you know, the, the sin city of its days. But the more that's learned about the Roman Empire, the more it's found that this was fairly common with a lot of industrious cities during the Roman Empire. But that's where Paul is at. So in, in chapter 18, Paul starts out to preach the gospel in Corinth. Let me just walk you through this chapter here, and then we'll talk about it. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Now, why did Claudius deport all the Jews from Rome? Really because they were constantly bickering and fighting with each other. Some of the Jews said Jesus was the Messiah, and others said, no, 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 he didn't raise from the dead, he was nothing. And so they fought, and they bickered all the time. So how did Claudius deal with this issue? He kicked them all out. He just said, everybody, you're out of the city, got rid of them all. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they're believers in Jesus Christ, and they head to Corinth, right about the time that Paul arrives. Verse 3, Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. So think bivocational minister. That's what Paul was here. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. So if you went to a new city, you didn't know anybody, right, in the city, like what would you do? Paul finds some community with, with Priscilla and Aquila, and then he goes right to work at the mission of what he's all about. Pick it up in verse 5. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all of his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, what does it say here that he exclusively began to preach the word here? Before it said he was a tent maker, and biblical scholars are pretty much in agreement there was a shift that happens in Acts chapter 18. It would seem now that uh, there's some shift where he is now doing ministry full time. We don't know why. Maybe Timothy and Silas brought some type of offering that funded the mission of the kingdom. That would happen. We understand as we read that uh, those type of things would happen. But whatever the case is, he seemed to be freed up to preach the gospel full time now, and that's what he did. You know that um, your tithes and offerings really work the same way. It funds the mission of the church. That's, that's what they do. It's just what's happening here. And together, we fund what God wants to do through Wendover Hills, just like other churches fund the mission that God has called their churches to. And by the way, can I just tell you for a second what a tremendous job of giving you've done this summer? Uh, I looked back on last year's giving numbers, June and July. We're starting August now. Those are the dreaded three that pastors talk about all the time, the summer months when nobody's there and, uh, um, and uh, vacations and, and tithing drops and whatnot. And as I looked at it, not only are, have we come very close to hitting our budget number, which is very tough in the summertime, we're way above our numbers last year in June and July. And I'd love to look and say, wow, that's because we added 100 people. Not really. We've added a few people in average attendance. But it is some discipleship component, some commitment to giving that you've done. And so uh, I want to just commend you on that. You've done a tremendous job. Uh, we're not through the, the dreaded three, though. Okay, we have August to go. 
So that's why there's little envelopes on your chairs. Use them well this morning. All right, let's move on. Number six, uh, verse six, excuse me. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to preach to the Gentiles. Now, Paul gets pretty predictable results wherever he preaches. He goes into a town, he kind of lights it up preaching, he gets insulted and those type of things, and some people come to know the Lord. That's kind of his regular pattern here. But something different happens here. You see, there's, there's another shift that we find here that Paul turns to them this time and says, look, your blood is on your own hands. What he's really saying, look, you Jews, I have preached the Messiah that your scriptures tell you about. And you don't want to have anything to do with that message. And I've preached it and preached it and preached it. I'm done. I'm going to go share with the Gentiles. I'm going to go talk to them, the non-Jewish people, the ones that didn't grow up reading the Old Testament as their scripture. And so he moves on to this new mission now, is what we find. Verse 7, Then he left and went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. This is an interesting little point here. Uh, Paul got his, um, I mean, he's got guts, I guess is the most spiritual word we're allowed to use here on Sunday morning. Um, he, he gets run out, basically. He's getting run out of town, insulted, right? All the way to the point where there's probably physical altercation coming. And what does he do? What would you do? I, I would probably, at very least, I would go across town where nobody knew who I was, and then I'd start up. It says he goes next door, <laughs> next door, and he starts right in preaching again next door. That's, that's pretty gutsy. Um, and we find that it was a fruitful thing for Paul to do. Then we get this key verse, and we're going to break this down with the rest of the message today. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. This is the third time this has happened. The first was on the road to Damascus when he was converted. He became a Christian. The second happened in the temple, and now these words, and these are timely words for a guy who was just almost run out of town and had to shift his whole focus. No longer preaching to the Jews, now preaching to the Gentiles. These are timely words. Do you ever need a word of comfort at the right time? And do you ever just feel like, man, the right word at the right time would be very helpful? That's what this vision is to Paul. Listen to what it says. He told him, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack or harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. And then it says, so Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. And I find that in this scripture, I think that there's some practical things on how Paul was able to deal with what he was going through, and he still seemed to have this confidence on how to live life, and how to live with victory. And so I want to walk through these, and I think they'll be helpful for us this morning. If you've got your outline, just follow along as we, as we work through this. First one is this. How do you live with confidence? Number one, you've got to remove your fear. That's what happened in the vision here. That's what was said. Listen to the first words. Don't be afraid. You see, living in fear keeps us from living in confidence. Do you know that? Uh, I'm sure you do. You've lived it out if, you, if you're anything like me. Living in fear keeps us from risking and trying new things. You probably uh, remember this recent story. Felix Brumgarter, do you remember this guy? Uh, He did a test jump out of a helium balloon, and after this he decided to set up and complete a space jump from 128,000 feet. Do you remember seeing this? 
He fell nearly five minutes, 23 miles, and reached 700 miles per hour. I mean, you talk about removing your fear here. I mean, this guy's just like crazy, nuts. I don't even like those parachute rides at the amusement parks that drop you down on the string. That's, I mean, that's enough for me. We all have those different fears, don't we? I mean, we, what are some of the fears that you need to overcome if you had to answer it this morning? Believe it or not, check this out. There is a new fear, all right? Documented fear. It's called nomophobia. I'm not making it up. Don't laugh. The fear of being out of mobile phone contact. It's a new fear. Yeah. Um, I might have it. Uh, it causes anxiety in two out of three adults. Two out of three. It's now documented phenomena that people experience phantom mobile phone vibrations. So, yeah, you know, you know. Nah, false alarm. You, you know what I'm talking about. Seriously, though, what are you afraid of? What is it? Some of us are afraid to make a mistake so we don't do anything. Because what if we blow it? What if people look at it and go, oh, what are you doing? That kind of, we're afraid to make a mistake. Uh, some of us are afraid of a failure, just flat out blowing it entirely. And so why try if I'm going to fail in the end? Some of us are, on the other side, we're afraid of success. Now, why in the world would anybody be afraid of success? I mean, is anybody? Yeah, why? Because repeated success is more difficult than the first success. That, uh, and so we get afraid of success. That's why winning the Super Bowl uh, two years in a row, I think, is, is pretty difficult. When maybe any sports title two years in a row is tough. It only happened in, in Super Bowl seven times in the whole history. So we find this. Paul is pretty successful everywhere he goes, despite these hardships that he endures, right? And that success took a heavy toll on him. Success does that sometimes. He's insulted. He's beaten. He's abused. He's discouraged. He's tired. So these words, don't be afraid. These are timely words, important words for Paul to hear. So let me ask you, what is your greatest obstacle in overcoming your fear? What's your greatest obstacle? Is it your age? I'm just too young to do that. I'm, I'm too old now to do that. I'm too middle-aged to do that. Does that exist? Is that, is that possible? Sure. Maybe your education. I, I know too much. I, I don't know enough. Maybe your experience. I haven't done enough yet. Or I've done just too much. I'll let somebody else handle this one. What is your greatest obstacle? Maybe it's other people. My boss. It's the people I work. I would really uh, uh, succeed if I didn't have to work with these, these numbnuts. You know, those type of thinking. Is it someone else that we say is our obstacle? You know what my greatest obstacle is? I thought about this this week. It's me. I am my own greatest obstacle. It, it's usually that I know I don't do. That's usually my issue. So I don't really have anyone else I can blame. It's just me. I'm my own worst obstacle. And I think when we, we get in this situation where we're our worst stumbling block, then we tend to believe that we can't do anything significant for God. Do you ever believe that? I mean, there's sometimes, even as a pastor, where I sit in these, these short moments where I go like, am I doing anything significant for you at all, God? What are these obstacles? Maybe that's you. Have you bought into that type of thing that you can't do anything significant from God? I think these words to Paul, they're actually, were incredibly timely. He says later on in his writings, this, Paul says this, God can do anything, you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dream. He does it not by pushing us around, but how? 
by working within us. That's how we accomplish it. Fear is removed by faith. So the second one we want to look at this morning is you have to restore your courage. If you want to live with confidence, we have to get our courage back. How do you do that? Today, I think so many of us lack the courage to share Jesus Christ with other people. We lack it. I, I think we might feel like uh, we don't know enough. Um, what if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer to that, so I will just not do it at all? Uh, we might think that they think I'm going to be weird or strange. Even if you don't use those words, we, we just know there's going to be some discomfort or weirdness about it. But better yet, I think sometimes we even think, I'm afraid they will associate me with, with kind of those Christians. You know, those Christians I'm talking about? I mean, we're the level-headed, understanding Christian. But then there's these wacko Christians, right? I don't want to be associated with them at all. And so it kind of shuts us down. It's Edwin Burke. He's this Irish politician, and he actually once said this. The only thing necessary for triumph uh, over, of evil is for good men to do nothing. That was a, uh, a, a good quote that hit me this week. I want you to know that as a pastor of the church, sometimes I face this dilemma. Uh, I look at this and I, I think that the church of Jesus Christ should be the voice of God in our communities. Can I say that so you make sure? I, I believe strongly that this church, this body of Jesus Christ, should be the voice of God in the triad, in our community, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. It should be the voice. But the dilemma I face sometimes is I think about, like, what do we challenge in our culture? There's so much out there to combat. What do we challenge? What do we stand up for? What do we go for? Are, are there anything God sometimes says, hey, just, just hang back and trust me on that one. I'll, I'll work away. And if you've got, like, the perfect answer for the church, let, let us know, because it's always a prayerful struggle for the leadership of any church to work through those type of things. But I, I do know one thing for sure. I know this, that if the believers in Jesus Christ remain silent, another voice will rise up. Because history shows that if you remove the voice of God from any society, then it's in trouble. It'll crumble, because it will listen to something eventually. So, I don't know if you know this, I, I learned this this week, um, that the length, the average age of the world's greatest civilization is about 200 years. I didn't know that. So I know some of you history buffs, you know what Deb's already saying, I knew, I knew, I believe that. So, here, here's a great quote um, from Alexander Fraser Teitler. Here's what he says. Um, uh, it, it, he writes about this 200 years, but he writes about how civilizations progressed over the 200 years. And uh, check this out. It's really interesting stuff how these civilizations started out and how they progressed. Here's what he says. From bondage to spiritual faith. Many civilizations, they start out from bondage to spiritual faith. Not all of these were Christian nations, it should be said. From spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance. I mean, these are good things, right? We use these words. And then check this out, this, this flip. From abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence back into bondage. Pretty incredible. So where do you think we are, are right now? I mean, which stage would you believe that, like, our great nation is in right now? I mean, there is. <laughs> this participant, see, it, could, it could be. It could be. I, I don't quite know the answer. I mean, many of you in this church, you track these things a lot closer than I do, and you can speak more intelligently on these issues. But I, it would seem to me that we're somewhere between complacency and apathy, it, it would seem, um, that you can debate that at lunchtime over your Rio Grande lunch. Um, but... We would all probably agree, though, it's not outstanding. 
wherever we're at. So what's the answer? It's really clear. The answer is for us as Christians to ask God for boldness and for wisdom on when we need to speak up and when we need to stand up for our faith. That's really the answer. This same Paul we're talking about, he once wrote, excuse me, this. Here's what he says in the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. Here's the, the scary part of that verse for us. is We read that verse and we think, that means, that verse is for people who love to be combatant. They love to argue with people about religion and about God. They love to stand up and be a really loud, thunderous voice. I don't know that the verse has anything to do with that. I think the verse is just saying, look, I'm not ashamed of Christ. And so there's nothing about my relationship with Jesus Christ that would cause me to want to be quiet and to hide it. I'm not ashamed about that at all. So you put me in a culture that loves Christ, great. You put me in a culture that doesn't love Christ, I'm okay. Because I'm not ashamed of that. I'm going to live that out. This is from the mouth of Paul, the same one who's in Corinth and he's running for his life. He had to overcome his fear. He maybe had lack of courage sometimes. He kept speaking about Jesus. And I want to say to you, church, this morning, we need to do the same in the triad. Day after day after day, we have to keep speaking about Jesus. Now, you might say, but Tom, I feel inadequate to do this. Do you ever say that? You ever feel that? Well, good. You're in good company. Really good company. I feel the same. In fact, the Bible, read it. You will find that God constantly uses inadequate people to share his word. Over and over and over, that's the people he used. So if you feel inadequate, you just keep on speaking. You just keep on sharing. You keep on stretching your faith and don't give up. And if you're, if you're going to live with confidence, you've got to let this feeling of inadequacy go. And you will find that as you take courage here, that the courage was probably there all along. And it builds and it grows. Number three, if we've got to receive his promise is what we find in this short little vision that we read of in Acts chapter 18. If you want to live with confidence, some promises. What's a promise? Here's it, here it is in this vision. For I am with you and no one will attack and harm you. If you could live your life knowing that no one would attack and harm you ever, not just physically, because most of us don't walk down the street and get beat up all the time, but if you knew no words would ever attack, that if you did something, nobody was ever going to come behind you and harshly critique what you just did. Man, we could walk in pretty good confidence all the time. In fact, sometimes I think when I was 18, 19, 20 years old and I was youth pastoring, the reason I was so confident in my ministry and what we were doing is because I never thought about being harmed. It never even dawned on me that somebody would critique anything that I did or say, that wasn't good, Tom. Um, but now I'm 41 and I realize in the real world, that happens, you know. It happens a lot. It's rolling through some of your heads right now. So why did he say that? That didn't make sense. So... I don't know. Maybe it didn't. So, if we want to hear what we need to hear today, because I really think that in our culture, we live like we're scared of things. We live sometimes like we're scared to death of things, or we're scared for our kids for the future and them living out in this age. And it's not always a bad thing. But God says to us in this vision to Paul, look, believers, I'm with you. I'll take care of you, is what he's saying. Remember the promise God made to the disciples right before he returned to heaven? This is what it says. It was this great commission. He says, God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life. 
marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you. Here's the promise. I will be with excuse I will be with you as you do this day after day right up to the end of the age. God says, "Look, I am with you. I am with you. Your crisis in life is not too big for God. It's not you're not too big whatever your crisis is." Now, I know you might say, "Well, Tom, but you don't understand what I'm going through." And you know what? You're probably right. I, I don't. The more I've been in ministry, the more I understand some weird things happen to people. Um, they cause some of them, and other times they don't cause it. And they're, they're crazy stories sometimes. I would, ne- I would hope I'd never deal with some of those things in my life. But I know the words of Scripture, of God saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what crisis. In fact, your crisis may just be your opportunity for you to stretch your faith. Your opportunity to depend on God like you never have before. In fact, your crisis might be telling you in a loud voice, you are not depending on God. Now do it. That might be what your crisis is all about. Paul's in this crisis situation in Corinth. It's a crisis for his life, and God reassured him, Paul, hang in there. And then the promise, I will be with you, and I will take care of you. So the question for us is, if, if the God who created the world, don't you think that he can handle what might come up in our world? It seems like he'd be able to. Are you facing a crisis like with your family? Maybe with your job? Are you facing a crisis with your, your finances out there? Do you know most Americans, if you were to miss one paycheck, it would be like financial ruin. We're always facing crisis in that area. Are you facing crisis with your health? Or maybe you're facing a crisis that's your own doing and you know it. Are you flat out just unhappy in life? You've got to hear this promise this morning that, that God is giving Paul, and you've got to turn it over to God and let him handle it. Here's what Jesus said about it. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. So every one of us, we really just, we have two options. We can choose. We can choose stress or rest, burdens or blessings, problems or, or, or promises, obstacles or opportunity. It's really our choice. You want to get pounded by a verse for a second? That'd be fun for you? So, <laughs> some of you are like, what in the world? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I did this week when I read this. It's not the first time I've read it. In fact, my wife told me uh, a while back. And, um, but I read it this week. Proverbs 19, here's what it says. People ruin their lives by their own stupidity, so why does God always get the blame? It's a powerful verse. I mean, if you think about it for a second, isn't that what happens often? We decide not to live by God's promises, and then the results come. We don't like them, and we blame God. So God, why is God doing this to me? Well, because, like, you're drinking every night. Why is God doing this to me? What you never process about your finances, what you're spending your money on, and then you can't pay for your house at the end of the month. Why is God doing this? Did you ever stop and think about maybe spiritually building into your kids instead of just, you know, shipping them off to, to youth group? God is saying always to us, if you follow my ways, if you get ahead of it and walk with me, I got incredible life for you. But if you don't, these things will come come your way, and they're never that much fun when they come. This is what I believe uh, 
that now is the time, right now, for you to turn it over to God and let him help you out. Because sadly, in many of these situations, when we turn to blame God, people walk away from the faith entirely. Finally, here's, here's the fourth one if we want to live with confidence. We need to remember our reinforcements. Listen to what God told Paul here at the end of this vision. He says this, For many people in this city belong to me. I don't know if you're reading that, if that was a thing that popped off the page, but it's a significant one. Do you ever feel alone as a Christian? Do you ever uh, feel like you're alone in your neighborhood? Man, I'm the only one, the only one on my street that's a believer. I'm the only one at my job that is a believer. I'm the only one in my class at school. I'm the only believer in my family. Uh, There's no Christians on my church league softball team. Uh, You know, (laughs) that's just to make sure you're still tracking with me this morning. This happened to Elijah in the Old Testament. He's been doing these great things for God, right, on Mount Carmel. And Queen Jezebel starts to chase him and really scares him to death. And he finally ends up camping out and hiding in this cave. And he says to God, God, the whole world's in trouble, and I'm the only true believer. He says the word, I'm the only true believer out there. It's kind of, if you read the story, you'll feel it's kind of an overkill pity party going on. But... um, what does God do if you know the story? Uh, God does say, oh, you know, Elijah, you know, I, I, get, I understand. Hang in there, buddy. Um, no, he turns to him, and he gives him a wake-up call, and he says in 1 Kings 19.18, he says, I've got 7,000 people in Israel who haven't bowed a knee to the prophet Baal yet. So really, if you boil down the three sentences, he is saying, look, suck it up. Elijah, there's many people out there to join you in this mission. We are not defeated. We are not dead. Get out and and stay at it, is what he says. And I would say, no doubt, Paul felt this. And he went from town to town, often with just the clothes that are on his back, is all he had. He tried to pick up business in the new town to make some money so that he could fund the mission that he was on. And for some reason, God is compelled in this vision to tell Paul that he was not alone. Do you ever need to hear that? That you're not alone. That's the words that I think you need to remember from God. Remember your reinforcements. You are not alone. And the amazing thing is that when we take a stand for God, maybe in your workplace, when you take a stand, it's amazing how other people rise up. They come and they kind of, hey, I'm a believer as well. I thought I was the only one out here. And your stand actually causes other people to take a stand as well. Check this out. I learned, I learned this this week. A scientist at the uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute did, I'm not even smart enough to read that, did a, did a study and they concluded that if 10% of the population holds an unshakable belief that their belief will always be adopted by the majority of the society. Let me read that again. If only 10% of the population holds an unshakable belief, their belief will always be adopted by the majority of the society. That's incredible. You say, well, Tom, we have more than 10% in the triad that are going to church, so those stats must not really hold true. That's not what it says. It didn't say they're in church attendance. Uh, It says an unshakable belief. Unshakable. They're 100% on the cause and mission for God. Locked in. Believing. They're all in. 
And if you don't believe that those are real, you just check out what's going on in China right now in the Christian church. In fact, it's almost at the point where you will no longer say the underground church in China because the government, though they have not embraced the Christianity in the church, they are tolerant of it now. And this started as just a small group that started meeting in houses and houses and houses, and there was discipleship going on and on and on. And before you know it, it, it's caught fire in China. At the current pace, we will not be surprised in 20 years if China is considered a Christian nation. 20 years. That's amazing when you think about, when you think about China at all. And some of you go, I had no idea. Yeah, read that. Check that out. Uh, um, let me tell you uh, on a more practical side of it how we know this. Because next week, uh, next Sunday afternoon, uh, Tin Young Cheng, no, Tin, Tian Feng Chin, whew, I better get that right, I got one week, um, will be arriving from China to live with, with us for nine months as an exchange student. And here's a family who, for all, for all we know, doesn't know the Lord, right? Coming from a nation that has not been, been too open to Christianity, and they're going to send their kid across the pond to America for the first time ever to go to a Christian school, live with a Christian family, and they're going to live with a pastor uh, for nine months. Um, how open are they now? How open are the doors that God is using? When 10% of a population believe it, an unshakable belief, this can happen. Can it happen here? Can it happen here in our nation, in our triad, in our church, in our city? Well, guess what? That depends on us. Depends on you. It, it depends on me. It really depends on us. Are we going to live the Christian life with confidence? I mean, really, right now, it's a heavy burden for most Christians to get up and spend five minutes in God's holy word. In fact, I read an article just recently here about church has become, and this is for Christians, has become more of an, an accessory than it has a main thing. You know what he's saying there? It's an accessory. Like, I could add church to my Christianity. It might help out a little, but it's not necessary. It really depends on us if this could happen here. Will we share the name of Jesus with people far from God? Will we have this unshakable belief, this unshakable stand for what we believe in? It can happen here, but there's work to be done on our end. If we're committed to the mission of helping one more person find their way back to God is really what it takes. Do you mind just repeating that after me? Helping one more person find their way back to God. Yeah, that's what it really is going to take for us. It's our mission here at Windover. So how do we live with confidence when we don't know what the future holds? I think it boils down to we live in the present, but we've got to live in the presence of God what he's calling us to be, and what he's calling us to do. Here's the takeaway this morning. It's really just a question. It's a final blank for you to fill in if you, if you need to make sure you get them all filled in. I don't want to ruin your afternoon. What do you need to do to live with confidence? What do you need to do? Do you need to remove your fear? Do you need to trust God on the things that you cannot control? Do you need to restore your courage to keep speaking about Jesus, even at times when you're like, ah, I don't know what to do? Do you need to receive or remember his promise that your crisis in life is not too big for God? Do you need to remember your reinforcements and know that you are not alone in this journey? In fact, you're probably sitting with